Welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera. In each episode, I sit down with a member of the water polo community and talk about what helped make them successful in the world of water polo. In this episode, I sit down with Ted Minnis, the head men's and women's water polo coach at Harvard University. If you enjoy the episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star review on iTunes or share it with a friend. And if you have any feedback, you could always find me on Twitter at Steve Carrera, or you could email me at stevegcarrera at gmail.com. And if you'd like to help support the program, please go to offthedeckpodcast.com and click on the donate link at the top of the page. All right. I am uh, on the phone here with Harvard coach, Ted Minnis. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for being on the program. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so, you know, we're right in the beginning of women's season for college. Uh, high school season is dwindling down right now. So um, we are at the end of January. So I'm assuming you guys just started playing some games. So I'm sure you're super busy with all of that. Um, I wanted to just start off with a very generic question of how did you get started in coaching? Uh, where are you from? All those types of things. Yeah. So, uh, I grew up in the Bay area, um, in Menlo park. Um, so right next to, to Stanford, I was actually born at Stanford hospital. Um, and in eighth grade, um, one of my friend's dads had played water polo and he said, you should, you should try this sport. And so I, I tried it and, and I fell in love with it. Um, I always, for me, it was coaching is always something that I just wanted to do from a very young age at like 14, 15 years old. I enjoyed coaching. I think that's when I realized I, I wasn't going to be a professional athlete and, and I wasn't very <laughs> athletic. So, you know, the old saying, those who can't coach. Yeah. Um, so I started coaching a lot of basketball. I really, I was a, a, a gym rat and a junkie for basketball too. And, um, I wanted to coach, coach basketball at a very high level. And, um, I started, got my first coaching job in, uh, the fall of 1990 at Menlo Atherton high school, where I actually went to high school. Um, and my, my first senior class were freshmen, my senior year. So it was wow. a little weird dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and, and, I coached basketball too. And, and I was just kind of spinning my wheels for a few years and, and not kind of getting better at either one, you know, and, and I, I decided I had to, to choose one and uh, I was coaching a little higher level of water polo and, and I loved the sport and I just started coaching it. And I spent seven years as the head boys coach at Menlo Atherton. Um, and then I went to Castilea school, which is a small all girls school, um, right behind Stanford and Palo Alto high school. And I was there for 11 years. And, uh, one day I said, uh, the Harvard job's open. Let me see where my resume is lacking. And, uh, a month later they offered me the job and here we are nine years later. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I remember when, when you got hired at Harvard, um, you know, there was a lot of, not as much social media as there there is now, but there was articles and things written about you departing the Bay Area. And, you know, it seemed like you had built a really strong community um, among alumni and, and players that you coached uh, in that area. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I was I was coaching uh, the Stanford Club and, and at Castilea. And, and, you know, I think anytime you're involved with anything that, that JT does, there's going to be that family environment and that community that he naturally builds with what he does. And, and, you know, I think he's, he's my biggest mentor and has taught me so much and I really owe so much to him to where I'm at today. And, and I, I think 
for me, I'm always telling my players, whether I was a high school coach or, or college coaches, I, I care more about them outside of the pool than I do inside the pool. I mean, if, if they're just a, an athlete and they're just going to try to win me championships, they're not going to appreciate, they're not going to give their best, but they know that I care about how their day went. I want to help them be better men and women. I want them to be leaders in the classroom, in the community, you know, in the pool. I want them to, to reach their full potential. And, and so I think when you do all those things, we've done a very good job here of building this family atmosphere and making sure both our men and women's teams realize that they're the ones that have each other. And I think that's always how I've done it from high school all the way up. And, and so it's just been pretty, I've been pretty lucky. I've had a lot of good kids that have bought into what I'm, I'm trying to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the, with the amount of success that you've had at Harvard, you know, I went to Queens College, so we played yep. Harvard. You know, this was late late nineties, you know, two thousands. Harvard was always Harvard, um, the great yeah. facilities and everything, but the there was always like one or two good players and then not really much balance from there. Right. Um and you've really been able to to bring some high level division one recruits um out to Harvard to play for you, get a, yeah. obviously a great education. Do you think that's um, the state of college water polo right now where players are starting to see other options? Or do you think that it's a combination of that and seeing the environment that you've built around that program? Right. I think it's a, I think it's both. Um, you know, when I got here, the, the big thing I would tell everyone is like, I'm not selling a university here that Harvard sells itself. Yeah. And so I'm selling what I bring to the table as a water polo coach. And I think once I've got a, a reputation, we started doing some good stuff that, that kind of helped. And, and we started having conversations with better kids, you know, throughout the country. Um, but I, I also think kids these days are, are really starting to understand that water polo is an amazing sport and you're going to be able to do a lot of really cool things, but you're only going to have, well, now 11 people on an Olympic team yeah. and, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to go and, and, you know, play, you know, a 12 year, 14 year career, retire and not have to work another day in your life. I mean, you know, I was talking to Tony at NC2A as Azevedo and I said to him, I said, I use you as an example all the time. Like, you were probably the most decorated men's player to come through the U.S. and you played a long career in Europe and, and you're out here hustling to, to, you know, you're not retired. You're hustling with all the stuff you got going on because you, you can't just go and sit on a beach somewhere and not work, which yeah. I'm sure you would love to do. You know? Of course. And, and so, you know, here, what I'm always talking about is the next 40 years of their lives, you know, like that's what I want to want them to be thinking about is what's their future? How can they use water polo to set them up so that they're going to be successful in whatever they want to do? And then I also think, you know, when you, you look at the East Coast, there's differences. And, you know, when I first got here, it was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the next big four out here and we're going to compete and we're going to do all this stuff and I'm going to do everything like they do. And, and that's just not the way it is out here. I have a totally different product that I'm selling than the Stanford, the UCLA's, the USC's are selling. We're going to, you're going to have your summers here. You're going to be able to go and get an internship. You're going to not have to stay on campus. The Ivy league won't allow us to stay on campus and train all summer long. Oh. So they're going to be able to go off and do other things. So really we're selling a different product than the other schools are. So when these kids are coming here, they already have an idea of what to expect when they get here. And it seems like, in order for a student athlete to buy into that early on, it seems like they have to be very mature to be able to yep. understand that and go, okay, well, I see a future because 
as like a, as a 18 year old boy, you know, I'm going like, I want to do this and I want to go crazy and I want to be on the national team. And I want to, we got to train every single day. That's what you're thinking until you actually get into the environment. So, and I mean, obviously if, if you're going to Harvard, you are mature, you are, you have accomplished a lot, but is that what you're like looking for as well as like, Hey, look at my vision. It's not going to be water polo 24 seven. And, and they have to buy into that early on, right? Through the recruiting process. A hundred percent. You know, you take, you take a Grace Folly who's a freshman for us this year. And, and, you know, I, I in my mind, you know, I'm a little biased because she plays for me now, but I thought she was one of the top recruits in that class last year. Yeah. And going through the process with her the whole time, the conversations me and my staff would be having is like, this is exactly what Grace wants. Grace wants to be able to do all these other things too, and try to play water polo at a very high level. And so when you get a player like that and you find them, those are the ones that you're just, you salivate over her. Right. Yeah. And other people don't understand it. It's, it's like, oh, they chose to go east. They don't care about water polo. But that's not true. Just because they chose to, to come east, they're just saying that there's a lot that they, they can do and a lot that they want to accomplish in their life along with water polo. And so I think that's an important distinction when these people look at it and say, well, they just don't want to work hard or they don't really care about water polo. You know, like that Dennis Blyshoff comes to us and, you know, he's arguably the best player on the East Coast. And, you know, he's, he's an amazing player. But, you know, Dennis is a very smart, intelligent young man who really has thought a lot about his future. But he he's such a great teammate and he competes so hard that he brings the level up for everybody else in our practices. And so those are the kids that, that we're looking for. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and on a side note, Grace thought Ollie's grandfather, Mike, amazing guy. If you haven't had a chance to meet him, awesome dude. He used to talk all the time on the pool deck. Yeah, I, I actually met him last year at CIF semifinals. I'm standing on the deck watching her play her semifinal game, and they had just lost. And I felt really bad because the last two times I watched her play in high school, they lost. Yeah. And I was like, I'm so sorry. It's <laughs> yeah. my fault. I won't come. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but her grandfather comes up and goes, are you, are you watching that Folly girl? And I was like, yeah. He goes, you got a good one there. And I was like, oh, I know. And he goes, I'm a grandfather. And introduced it. It was just oh. a great, you know, great conversation. Yeah, he is. He literally, we would talk for hours on the pool deck and, you know, we don't normally do that. You know, as coaches, we don't talk to parents all the time, but he was just one of the few that I loved having good conversations with. So, um, so, um, so what do you think leading into the next question, which is what do you feel is the, is the overall state of college water polo right now? I mean, things like, seems like things are splitting a little bit, especially on the East coast, you know, new conferences and, new conference out here on the West coast, you know, the GCC, um, you know, how do you feel about the, the changes and, and things going on right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think so. I was uh, obviously involved in all the conversations when we split into the Northeast water polo and the mid Atlantic water polo conferences. And, you know, at the time, um, our thought process there was, well, one, we were the largest conference in the country with 20 plus teams trying to navigate through to, to win a championship. And, um, there was a lot of what was going to go on with the GCC wasn't going to have a bid at the point because they had to sit out because they had just broken off from the MPSF and what was going to happen with the MPSF. Were they going to have enough teams to have an AQ and all of this? And so we on the East coast, we said, well, we can split and and apply for another bid. And if they give it now, we maybe the, 
the tournament won't drop to back to four teams because I believe the year before it had just gone to six teams and they were going to allow it to go to seven teams that following year, the first year that we had our conference. And then the GCC would get their bid and would they go, let's go to eight. And they actually did push us to eight teams with these, these first round games. So you're kind of, you saw the tournament expand. And I think that's a huge thing to have expansion in water polo because, you know, we're a very small Olympic sport and, when you look at it, there are probably are more D3s than there are D1s in, yeah. in college water polo right now. And so an expansion is great. You're seeing a lot of D3s pop up, but, you know, we need to kind of grow at D1. And so I think we're having all these conversations and, and the growth of the sport and trying to show the growth has been really good. Um, you so mentioned, I'm, I'm excited. You, you mentioned uh, a term AQ for, for the audience uh, that may uh, not know what that is. What is that? What is AQ? An automatic automatic qualifier. Okay. So each each conference has their automatic qualifier. So the champion of the MPSF gets a bid to the to the NC2As and and then the GCC, the WWPA, Northeast, uh, Skyac, and Mid Atlantic. So those are the six automatic qualifiers. And then there's two at large bids in the NC2A tournament. So ultimately, it seems like the goal is like George Washington got you know won their conference. So the the goal is that you know more players see these different options and say look this is a place for me get more kids playing which you know kind of lines up with USA Water Polo's goal of getting people to play after college i mean exactly. are there conversations between USA Water Polo and the collegiate ranks about that specific goal or are you guys just totally doing your own thing and separate no, I mean, so I think John Abdu has done an amazing job in his role with, you know, being a, a, a former coach that all the coaches respect and then doing all the stuff he's doing with USA Water Polo. And he's actually um, our executive director of our college coaching association. And so he works with the college coaches association and having the USA water polo ties. So we're really the college association, coaching association and, and USA water polo always are having some kind of conversation and looking at what's going to be best for, for college water polo and for USA water polo and kind of getting the calendars to work and, and making sure, you know, like East coast college players are getting opportunities to play in the national league and all these things. So, so I think, you know, John's done a great job in that sense and, and Felix Mercado at Brown is, is the, the president of the association and and our goal is to have a more professional organization of coaches and so I think over the last few years we've had a, a meeting uh, between JOs where almost all the college coaches or a good number are coming to the meeting and we're getting a lot of things done where we're trying to show that we're a strong presence so that we can have a voice in the NCAA and you know kind of help grow the sport in that sense like, like basketball you know like the basketball coaches association is very strong and they make billions of dollars for the NC2A. So, you know, we're not going to make that kind of money, but yeah. we want to make sure we have a voice. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm very lucky. I, I, all I have to do is think about water polo all day. So, you know, I don't want that to go away and I don't want water polo to die on my watch. Yeah, so those absolutely. are kind of how I, how I live. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I think it, it's definitely elevated. You could see the professionalism coming into the sport over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, um, just this past weekend, USA Water Polo, John Abdu put on the the coaches summit, you know, things yep. like that, I think, are definitely elevating the professionalism for for everybody and accountability to look, we, it's not just like a, 
you know, pickup type game. Like there's, there's a structure to the entire sport, which I think is, is really important. So, um, so you had a, a, a massive win. You've had a couple of massive wins over the, over the course of your career. Um, you've won mm-hmm. some championships, uh, for your conference. Um, how many championships have you been involved with men and women, uh, at Harvard? So we've played, we haven't played in a championship on the women's side. The farthest we've gone was we made the semi, uh, finals of our conference two years ago and we lost to Michigan. Um, it's a, a tough, very strong program. That's a tough yeah. program to beat. Definitely a tough <laughs> yeah. Program. yeah. You know, so Marcelo has done a great job and, and so, you know, we're, we're definitely chasing them on the women's side and, and, uh, you know, he has another very strong team this year and he brought in some, some, some good players, uh, to go along with his returners. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens there, but on the men's side, we've been involved in the, the last three conference championships. Uh, we were lucky enough to win the first two. Um, and we, we lost, uh, just last, uh, November to, to Princeton in the finals of our conference championship. Um, you know, so those are the only, three championship games uh, Harvard's been involved with on the men's or the women's side. So I'm very proud of what we've accomplished. And when we went to our banquet, I told my seniors it was the day after we lost to Princeton and they were pretty bummed. And I said, when we were going through the recruiting process, if I would have told you, excuse me, that, you know, you were going to be involved in three conference championships, win two of them. You were going to go to the, to the NCAA final four and you would have an opportunity to beat Cal. Would you take it? And they smiled. And I was like, so let's, let's celebrate what you've done here now and and not worry about what happened yesterday. So yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing when I, you know, we have banners now on our pool deck that we never had and our alumni come back and, and you just see them taking pictures and how happy they are and proud of what we've accomplished. And, and that kind of just makes me feel good because, you know, this is like, you know, you watch your child, you know, I know you had a son and you watch him grow. And now my, my children are nine, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm watching yeah. them do these amazing things. So it's yeah, a lot no. of fun. And it feels good when you go to a place and you build that back up either from, it was kind of torn apart or you build it from, from scratch. I mean, it, there's nothing really more satisfying than going to a place that, you know, you know, you've, you've really made your mark. Um, right. and, and for a lot of people, um, you know, touching on what you talked about earlier with, you know, players going East coast, West coast, that kind of thing. Yeah. People don't understand how intense these games are, you know, play, yeah. having played on the East coast, you know, I think people think that the level is, is low or lower. And I mean, you know, you have a ton of really, really talented players on the East Coast playing at these Ivy Leagues and other schools. Yep. Um, you know, could you tell us a little bit about some of those championship games? I mean, um, you know, any anything that, that just comes to your mind right off the top of your head? I mean, they all have been battles. Um, you know, I think I've, I've played against uh, Princeton twice and Brown once in, in the last three finals and, and – and I played the other one in the semifinals. And so you, you kind of got to go, you look at it as rivalry games to, to, you know, go through a semi and a final is, is it's a lot, a lot of work. And, um, you see these kids through the recruiting process. So, you know, them all because we're recruiting from the same pool of kids. Um, you know, and I think it's, you, it's, it's always going to be a good game. It doesn't matter where each program is. Uh, I remember when we were first starting here and I got here, you know, we would have some of our closest games against, against Brown and, you know, Felix's teams were really good 
then, and I mean, they're still really good, but they were really, they were winning. They won their first conference championship and, and we're, you know, losing to them by one. And, and then just these battles and Princeton's the same way. We chased Princeton forever. Um, when I first got here, we, first time we played them, we lost by 10. Um, and we slowly kind of started chipping away at it. And then the next thing you know, now it's one, two goal games. And, and, you know, we, we beat them at their place last year in sudden death, uh, you know, and, and it's just the intensity, the crowds, you go to St. Francis. I mean, you remember those games going yep. to St. Francis and playing down in the, <laughs> the dungeon. down in that dungeon <laughs> and it's, you know, it's loud. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, I think, you know, people don't, I, I say this all the time to my, when Cassie first got here, um, I said, look, we're going to, you're going to go to the Chicago state championships. And she's like, well, we're not really looking at a bunch of kids from Chicago. Why are we going to, I go, you have to go and experience what it's like to be at the Chicago high school state championships. Yeah. And you go there and it's like going to a basketball game. They bring in the stands are packed. They're running cheers. It's loud. It's, it's an amazing atmosphere. And so you get outside of California and you go to these high school games and you go to these, these college games. And it's just, it's, it's a fun environment and it's what college and high school sports are supposed to be like. And I think you get great crowds that know the game in, in California, but you're outside and it's not quite as loud when you're inside and they're right over you. Like, yeah. you know, you go, we go to MIT and they're two bridges away and people would always say to me like they're D3. Well, that, that doesn't matter. MIT has some very, very good players and, and they, their student section is right over your bench for the second half. And all they do are heckling you the whole time and you can't pay attention because you got to be focused on the game. But they're like, you know, they, they say, Ted, what are you going to do, man? You, you better ask Cassie. She needs to help you. You don't know what's going on. And, and, uh, one, the best one was they said to my sprinter, he never, he, he won 96% of his sprints, uh, Evan Ramsey from, from CDM fast kid. And he's about to go off on a sprint. And this kid yells down and goes, Ramsey, you're so slow. You still use internet Explorer. And it's just like, Oh my, where do you think of that? You know, that's MIT and, right there. <laughs> Right. You know, and they have pots and pans and they're banging them. And it's, I mean, you know, it's just, you get to these games and these kids are so passionate and not a lot of them know a whole lot about the sport, but they, they, they know how to cheer for their teams. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. For sure. And then there's like, it's not like uh, this ego thing over there as much as it is maybe on the West coast. It's, it is a lot of fun for the fans to come out and, you know, you don't just see like moms and dads in the stands, you see like friends and you know, other students. And I I think that's a really cool experience. And that's how I remember it for sure. I mean, I remember playing at Brown and we lost in the final at Brown. And I remember the crowd being crazy and nuts and um, great experience for me. And so, you know, as you're moving into, you know, another year, you know, you're, you're continually trying, I I would assume that I don't, I mean, I would assume that the goal always is to be the best and to, you know, to be number one, if you could win the national championship, that's the the aim. Is that, would that be pretty accurate? Yeah. I mean, like I, I tell kids all the time, like, you know, our, our number one goal is to win a conference championship. I mean, that's, that's what we're judged by, right. Is winning a conference championship. And, and, you know, we do all of our tapering and everything, getting ready to win a conference championship. And then NCAAs is, is the, the icing on the cake, but I don't do this to lose, right. I'm, I'm a competitive person just like you are. And, and I, I want to win every game we play. And, you know, sometimes I'm probably a little overconfident about my teams and I think we can play with anybody, you know, and then, you know, you go play SC in the semis and, 
they put a whooping on you. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, but I, I think you learn from those things. But, Mike, the mentality of our program is, is that, you know, we want to be NCAA competitive. Yeah. You know, we want to compete with, with the top teams. You know, we don't want to show up and be like, oh, we're playing X and they're a big four and we shouldn't even be in the pool with them. And, you know, we talk about with our kids all the time, like, you look at their roster. How many of them did you grow up playing with? Like, you know, you've, yeah. you played club with all those kids. Like, you grew, were you scared of them when you were playing them? Well, no. Well, why are you scared of them now? Like, yeah. we'll just go out and we'll play our best, you yeah. know? Do you, and, think, do you think it's a matter of depth, you know, like in terms of the roster? Because, I mean, you look at a UCLA, USC, Cal, I, I don't I don't know if I could put Stanford in this because their rosters are never super massive. Um, but I mean, I do put Stanford like their last guy was an All-American. You know what I mean? They're the last guy on the bench. So do you, do you see that as like a depth issue or, um, you know, I, I don't even know what else it could be. Yeah, well, I, I think I, I have a couple of theories on that that I could be right or could be wrong. I don't know. I mean, I think depth definitely, um, you know, I, I – pride myself since we've got here building depth in our program where we can run, you know, five, six guys off the bench and we're not going to drop off that drastically from yeah. where we're at, you know, and, and that's good for us, you know, um, I, I, and whereas, you know, you get the, the other programs are going to come, you know, six, eight, nine off the bench yeah. and they're, they're going to have that depth. Um, I, I think there's, there's a couple of things like when we play, when, when a lot of the, the team, UCLA, Stanford, you know, Davis, they all come out here the first weekend and they're, they've been training for them. So they're coming back to school right now in, in, in the next week or two, they're going to start their five week program. Mm. And they're going to train 20 hours a day. They're going to have their video sessions. They're going to have their lifts. They're going to have all that. It's going to be yeah, a week. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a day. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, and, and they're, they're, they're going to get that training in. And then school's going to end. Their five weeks are going to end. School's going to end. And they're going to go into a summer season with their quote-unquote club team. Yeah. And because we're an exempt sport, that we're allowed to do that. And they're going to train all summer. And then they're going to start in August on the same start date as the rest of us. And we, we go into season for us. We get out of season. Um, you know, my guys just school started today. And so they, uh, from, from break. So they, they're starting classes. So they, they had their first lift today. Uh, we're allowed 12 out of season practices. And so they're no more than three in a week and no more than two hours each practice. And so if we play and we play in a turn, I mean, at Brown. And so each day we play in that tournament, it counts as one of those practices too. Gotcha. So we usually get 11 practices in. Um, this is when they're going to be taking those classes that they don't want to take when they're in season because they're going to be a little more demanding because mm -hmm. they don't have that time constraint. Um, they're going to go and get their internship for the summer or they're going to go abroad and they're gone. And hopefully they're swimming. Um, you know, I tell them it's not my job to get you back into shape. You know, it's my job to keep you in shape when you come on campus for the first day. And my guys and, and, and my women have done a very good job of doing that. Um, and then we get two weeks and then we hit the water with our first game and we play these California teams. And where we're at in that two weeks is where they were back in May. Yeah. And sure. so, so I think that is the, the, 
a big part of it is that we just don't get the same day in and day out to build that team. Their freshmen will go and take summer school, their incoming freshmen. And so now they're allowed to train with that team or they're within the 50 mile rule and they're allowed to train with that team. And so everybody's kind of incorporated and you're three months in with your new team and you've got everything implemented and we're lucky we can play a five man, you know, (laughs) you know, and not give up a goal, you know? So I think, do you think it would be fair if all of the water polo schools, and this is just something that I'm asking randomly, is it is it something that would be fair to just have all water polo schools have the exact same restrictions, or do you think that would be uh, a, have a negative impact on the sport? I I, I think it would be. I, I, I kind of, you know, oh, that would be great because yeah, everybody following the same rules that I follow, that yeah. would be great. If they didn't do it, I'd still be following the same rules because the Ivy League is, the Ivy League is not going to change what we do. Um, but I, I think I personally don't mind what's going on because again, it's, it, it's a different, I have a different mindset, yeah, right? Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not all the end for me and I'm not judged by my administration if I win a national championship or not. And there are some coaches that are in the country and our small sport where the, these athletic directors and administrators do care if they win a national championship or not, which, yeah. you know, is what sports is all about. I, I think, I, I, I think there's kind of some self, roster limits you hear about roster limits but i think you see these these rosters are getting smaller now um by these teams and i think that's that's really put some uh, more of a level playing field i thought this year with the new rule when it went from 30 meters to 25 meters i thought that really brought uh the gap closed the gap a little yeah. um you know where it was a little more competitive like let's be real the big four are going to be the big four yeah, right. Yeah. Like that's, that's just who they are, you know, and then you put like Pacific is right there and, you know, Long Beach state was right there, but you know, that's really what everybody else is looking to, to kind of jockey for that five through 12, five through 15 spot. And I think we're able to work into those parameters with where we're at. And I think having the big four is good for our sport because I mean, they're the ones that are selling all the tickets and keeping everybody interested in, then watching us, you know, and, and, yeah. You get some good stories with us and people get a little excited about us and, and you just hope you can stay relevant. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and I think the longevity is, is also really important, you know, so you don't want the program to be good for one or two years and then drop off and then kind of go away. I think it's a right. really good thing to stay, you know, Harvard, the Princeton, the Brown, you know, those, those teams being consistently good, I think is a, is a great thing. Just like the big four are consistently good, you know? So yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that's what's, what's so fun in the last two years. And, you know, the run we had two, three years, whatever, three years ago when we made it to the final four, like, you know, that, that's an amazing, amazing run. You know, we beat a, a very, very good Bucknell team here at home in, in sudden death. And then we go to Cal and play a Davis team that, that, you know, is, we've just been battling with the last four or five years, you know, Dan and I have had a, have a pretty good rivalry going on and we beat them in sudden death and then get to, to play, to play SC. And, and if you, you watch some of the video after we beat Davis, like we're, we're jumping up and down, we're holding up four fingers. Cause like we, that was our ultimate goal was to get to the final four yeah, yeah. and we did it. You know, and will another East Coast team be able to do that again? You know, it's possible, you know, but that's a pretty special run that you had to go through to get there. And, and we're very proud of that. Yeah. I mean, in my career as a water polo coach, I, I could only remember one team outside of the big four making it to the final game, 
which was UC San Diego, upset yep. USC in the semi, you know, in the mid 2000s. I can't remember. It was, it was actually Adam Wright's senior year at UCLA is what I remember. Um, and then mm -hmm. UCLA won the national championship, but you know, one time, I mean, one yep. time. So it's, it's anytime you can get to that top four, it's, it's a huge, massive accomplishment, and especially yeah. and we, Davis and is huge. Won, right. And you win your way there, you know, and that was, that was the key, you yeah. know, before when it was a four team and East coast team was going to make the final four, Yeah, yeah. You, you know, but we were very proud that the, the tournament has ex had expanded and that we, we won our way there. You know, it wasn't like they gave us a walk to the final four. Yeah. And yeah. I think we were very proud of that. Yeah, so. absolutely. So do yeah. you see, you know, uh, touching on the rosters and sort of balance of power, do you see um, similarities in successful players that you have coached throughout? I mean, you've had some phenomenal players go through your program, and I'm sure you had some in high school as well. Are, are there yeah. any similarities that coaches out there could be looking for, like trends in the way they play or how they work? I mean, I, I think for for me, we're really lucky overall with water polo because we have a lot of very smart players academically that play our game. And we as club and high school coaches put a big demand on these kids playing our sport. I mean, they play almost year round. I remember when I was coaching high school, my parents would be like, so we get two weeks in August and that's it. And I'm like, yep, that's it. You get that two weeks after jails and then we're going to start our high school season. And, you know, I think now when you're looking at these kids, they're very well organized. They budget their time very well. Um, they understand how to have multiple balls up in the air. And those are the kinds of kids that are going to be successful at an Ivy League school because you're going to have all these other things that are going on, um, you know, that are going to pull you. And, and you have the, the quote unquote for us, the other side of the river, which is the academic side of the river, where you're going to have all these kids that are, are doing all these things, you know, like getting these internships and these jobs and they're stressing on that stuff and our kids are stressing about that but they also have to be worried about what are we doing on five on six what are we doing here i got to get over here to lift i got practice you know i'm not going to have time to go to this this thing and so those are the kids that are going to be successful that are very good at budgeting their time um the hardest thing i think is when i get kids they don't they're not used to failing a lot and you know they're the top of their class academically they're they're being successful in the water with their club teams or their high school teams and all that. And, and you get here to Harvard, you know, there's 1,650 kids in your freshman class. Someone's going to be number 1,650. That's yeah. just the way it is, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so those are, uh, those are some of the tougher things that we have to teach them. But I think those are the, the main things we're always looking at is, are they going to be able to be successful academically and athletically here? Because if they're not, they're not going to be, be successful. So. And without, without, you know, <laughs> revealing your recruiting secrets, obviously. <laughs> I know it's still a competition, but you know, yeah. how are, how do you evaluate that? Uh, how do you evaluate those, those things in players? I mean, and, and then also on another question would be playing wise, what are you looking for? I mean, what is it? Are, yeah. are you specifically looking for things that are going to help you in, in a particular year? Or are you always looking for, I mean, to me, it always seems like you're not you, but college coaches having recruited coached at Concordia for five years, you know, I'm always just yeah. looking for the best player. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care yeah. if I have a two meter man, like if I, if I can get another one, then gravy, you know? So, yeah. um, I guess the first question is how do you evaluate those things that you talked about earlier? 
who are you reaching out to? Who are you talking to to be able to get those answers? And yeah. and then playing wise, you know, what is it that you're looking for um, in players? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing is is we. I'm, I'm very lucky. I got another assistant coach this year. And so that we have some more help so we can get out a little bit more, but, but people don't understand when you're on the East coast, you know, I got to fly to come and, and go and go and, and watch JOs and, yeah. and get a hotel and do all that stuff. It's not just a drive to go watch a high school game. So we do a very good job of kind of breaking up, you know, my assistants are always going to be in charge of the juniors and they're always going to be out at these tournaments, evaluating those sophomores and kind of putting a list together. And then we get a list and then we start contacting those coaches that we have a relationship with and start, you know, who should we be looking at on your team? Who, you know, can we start thinking about who, who are the ones that have the grades? You know, I'm sure with your, your kids, you start probably their sophomore year talking to them about what colleges they're looking at and, and, you know, kind of getting that together. And when, when a very high academic one comes on your list, then you start to say, well, let's look at your grades and see, you know, if this is going to be viable. And so we do that. And then once we get their academic profile um, and feel like they're on the right track, to have an opportunity to get admitted, they will start evaluating them more water polo wise. And I think for me, we're always putting together a list where we're going to put the best kids that are academically eligible together and we're going to have conversations with them and they'll start to sift themselves out. You'll have those kids that are like, I'm going to Stanford. And, you know, once that's, you know, okay, I know. And then I I can keep kind of dwindling the list down. When I first got here, I was on the same track that you were talking about when you were at Concordia. I just want the best available athletes. And that was very important so that I could get these athletes in here that were going to be able to run the system of play that we run and be able to, you know, have a higher water polo IQ for me to be building on my system. And once we got to that point and we've got these kids and you get the, you know, on the guy side, I get, I get some, I get Ben Zepfel from, from CDM and, and Colin Woolway who played at Rose Bowl and a Blakely. And, um, you know, we're, we're getting some pretty talented kids that class. That was our second class. And, and those kids were definitely the best athletes that wanted to come and the best players. And now we get to the this point where we start talking about that next recruiting class and we're looking at our roster and who are we graduating and what were the needs that we had. So now we definitely are looking at positions and we are saying like, you know, and I think, I think there's a lack of, of, depth at the center position in the United States. Yeah, I, I, I think agree. we can all probably agree on that. And so that's always, if there's a center that's going to slip to me, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited because, you know, everybody's taking centers. You're, it's going to start at the top with, with SC, UCLA, Stanford, yeah. Cal, they're going to be taking centers and then it's what's left. And so definitely we're always looking at that position. You have to be strategic because I don't have a ton of supported spots. So I can't bring in a class of 10 or 11 kids. That's just not going to be the way. Admissions isn't going to do that for me. So I have a very small number. So I have to be strategic about when I bring goalies in and, you know, what, how try to spread them out so that I'm not having an abundance of goalies and not enough field players. And Um, and that's so, you know, and, and again, for, for people who don't maybe understand the recruiting process, can you touch briefly on what a supported spot, because I think there's a lot of mis, uh, misinformation about 
admittance into these colleges and how much power each coach has and so on and so forth. Can you touch briefly yeah. on that? Yeah. So I, I think when you're looking at, at state schools, SC, uh, you know, UCs, um, you know, I, I believe they have some, some slots that they can fill. And if you are in a range, they can just say like, you're going to get that slot and you're going to get admitted. Um, when you're looking at the Ivy league schools, Stanford would be in the, the same boat with the way they do their admittance. You know, you're, those kids are going to fill out an application with admissions and go through the same admissions process as any other applicant would. And so, we're as coaches in the Ivy leagues, we, we get support. And so you have a supported spot and you get a certain number of those supported spots. And that's what we have. We don't sign scholarships, so we don't sign national letters. And so we can, we can support a kid's application. And if they're getting pressure from another school to sign a scholarship, we can do a likely letter. And so the likely letter is, is 99% that they're going to get an admission admittance letter um, when the admittance letters come out. And so that's the, our way of saying, like, you don't have to sign that scholarship offer. You're going to get into the, the, to our school. So you're, seeing, so you're saying, sorry to interrupt, but you're saying that there, yep. I mean, obviously when three or four different schools are vying for the same player, the biggest thing is, or one of the big things is, am I even going to get in? Uh, you know, this person's yep. already telling me that I'm in and blah, blah, blah. I have to wait for Harvard. You know, I'm feeling the pressure. I, I better just go over here. And you're able to reassure them that, look, like it may come out later, but you're for sure getting in. And I guess piggybacking. As long as you don't break, as long as you don't break the law, your grades yeah. don't drop drastically. You don't do anything to embarrass yourself or your family. Yeah. You're most likely going to get it. You're going to get that admittance. And yes. if you could say, and I mean, if you can, I totally understand, but if you could say yeah. how many supported spots does it, an Ivy league school generally get, I would assume they're about the same. Nah, they're going to vary. Okay. Each school's okay. going to vary. Okay. Each team's going to vary. And that's like, for me, that's like kind of one of the things like I, when I do find out, I find out later what my target number is going to be that I have. Gotcha. And that's kind of like part of my poker cards. You know, I don't, if you start telling everybody, then, you know, Dusty and, and Derek and Felix, they start, they start doing the math and uh, figuring stuff out. Okay, I can yeah, keep yeah. them, keep them on their toes I, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to ask them the same question on the next podcast and i'll tell you you can listen up and i will be listening i will be listening so all right i just gained another listener right there there you go okay well no i appreciate you kind of you know going into the weeds with all of that because i think you know there's never been a time that recruiting and signing has been more like publicized and you know when when i was playing when you were playing it was all about getting a scholarship. I got a scholarship. Uh, I got a scholarship. Now it's just, can you get me in? That's that's the yeah, way I word yeah. it with parents when I talk to co- about college. It's like, forget the money. Like th- yeah. that's that's like the last thing on on your mind. Can you get in? That seems yeah. to be the scholarship these days. Yeah, exactly. 
And I think, you know, because, again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think these kids do realize that this education is very important. And if you have those kinds of grades that you're going to be able to go to a Harvard, a Princeton, a Brown, a Stanford, you know, an SC, a UCLA, those kinds of schools, like you, you're going to be able to do it. And the Ivies don't give scholarships. So that's not even a conversation that we have to have. Um, it's all need-based financial aid. And so it, you're definitely 100% right. It's, you know, if there's one piece of advice I could give a kid, if I had $10, I used to say a dollar, but inflation has really killed it. So a dollar <laughs> doesn't get you much. But if I had $10 every time a kid said they wish they could do their freshman year over again because they pulled it, they were told it doesn't matter, that, that's not true. Maybe they don't look at those classes as hard when they're looking at your transcript. But once your GPA goes down, it's hard to get your GPA up. Yeah. And we don't use weighted. When, when we're looking at a GPA, we're looking at an unweighted GPA. And so if you get your GPA down, it's hard to get it up into a range that is going to, an admissions office is going to look at and say, yeah, you can do the work. And so it's, it's very important once you hit high school that you're, you're doing all, all you can academically to keep your GPA up. And that's a great message for, I mean, I know you're around age group a lot. You know, you, I see you at JOs, you're watching games a great message yeah. for the seventh and eighth graders out there their parents that are that want to get to a school like harvard take it seriously yeah. from day one you know you got to have that goal yeah. for sure so um yeah. well you know i have a couple more questions and and i know we're yeah. running out of time here um i wanted to ask briefly and this is kind of a random one but i asked this of all my guests and that is yeah. if there was something in the world of water polo that you could change what what would that be is there anything yeah, I mean, I this sport has been so good to me. I mean, I've been all around the world because of water polo. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be with Dan and his staff videoing at World Championships two years ago, and so it's been it's been very good to me. I, I think you know, I wish we could change some of the gray in our sport, though. Um, it it kind of drives me crazy how much gray there is in our sport, and it's not so cut and dry all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, if, if if that was one thing that I could do, and I I would I would I would can we make it more, you know, like where there isn't so much gray, and and it's everybody who just sits down for the first time to watch our sport understands what's going on in our sport, yeah. because I don't think we can grow if if we don't figure that out, and I and I wish we didn't change our rules so much, like we're. I can't remember the last time basketball had a major rule change. Yeah. Like, like we have, like, you know, these new, new rules that are coming out from FINA. I don't know if I like them or not. I haven't had a real chance to watch them. I know, you know, they adopted, um, the college contra foul where the ball goes where it lies. I love that rule. Um, they also are doing where it's at, uh, on exclusions, the ball goes where it lies. I like that rule, but I don't know about the free subbing from half. Um, you yeah, know, yeah. I watched a little bit today. of, I watched a little bit of that. I was doing the the broadcast with Greg Meskel for the USA Italy uh, game, uh -huh. and it was interesting to have that that third cone out there where you could yeah. like get fouled and you could still shoot it. Um, yeah. The subbing and everything. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a lot more goals, but you know, I think us, you know, people who have been around it for so long, I, I think most parents are still saying to me after watching their kids play through high school and college say i still don't understand the rules but or i still don't really know what's going on but 
that's yeah, frustrating exactly. to hear that you know like yeah. you've been you've seen maybe a hundred games and you still are unsure about what's going on and and here we go changing a bunch of different things that really i mean it, i guess it impacts the scoring which i could see is exciting but i mean it's kind of the antithesis of what all of our all of us as coaches are telling our players like it's all about defense don't worry about yeah. scoring you know <laughs> get stops you know um, exactly so it kind of goes and against I mean, everything I, I grew up in the eighties and when I first started playing, um, you know, it was, you couldn't have three consecutive fouls at yeah. center without it being an exclusion and, and offenses counted as exclusions and you only had three yeah. and you know, the, so just since, you know, 88, the rules have changed that much, yeah. you know, and before that, you know, a common foul before I started playing a common ordinary foul counted as a personal foul. Yeah. You had five personal fouls. So, I mean, the game has changed so much since it started back in when it started in Scotland as well like almost like wall ball, right? Yeah. You know, where you could jump off, the, jump off the deck onto people. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and you could watch, so, you can look up YouTube on YouTube, watch the 84 Olympic game, the, the gold medal game or the round Robin, whatever it is. And you'll see those kickouts yeah. are ordinary fouls. And you see the switching out of two yeah. meters and the fronting. It, it's just like uh, that to me seemed a lot faster than the game now. Um, yeah. You know, which which is interesting that back in 84, things were just everyone's moving so much faster because if you didn't move switch to the foul, it was a goal pretty much every time. Oh, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, you're switching from X2 and X4 coming down to two meters and you're, you're coming out from behind because yeah. you, you, you don't want, you know, and stuff like that. And, it, and it's like when I first started coaching and I would tell kids that you could do these things, they're like, oh, you can't do that. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's how the game was when I played. Yeah. Like, I'm telling you, you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and what none of us are reinventing the wheel. Like, you're seeing a lot of this stuff happening now with the way defenses are working and, and, and you know, the team concepts of zones and, and trying to stay out in the press as long as you can and how you're, you know, you're switching out of two meters now a little bit more than you were maybe 10 years ago. So you're seeing the re-emerging re, re again. So Yeah, a lot a lot more of the quick driver as opposed to like the heavy, heavy grabbing and, and holding, which was plaguing yeah. our sport in like from 2010 to about 2015. Way too much grabbing yeah. in my opinion. But um, oh, I would agree with you. Yeah. So, I love the move. <laughs> I love moving. Yeah, I, me too. I, you know, I, and especially I, for I you because with, you probably don't get these massive dudes. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Right. You, you know, you're not, yeah, I don't have Ben Halleck. I don't have Ben Halleck running the center for yeah, me. That's, yeah. you know? <laughs> you know, that's a totally different situation there, you know, but um, yeah. I know you touched on this early on, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe elaborate a little bit more yeah. um, on who your biggest mentors or influences have been yeah. in your coaching career. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the top is John Tanner and uh, Susan Ortwine, um, Kyle Itsumi. Um, those three probably are my closest water polo friends that I had and taught me so much. And, um, you know, I look back in the, the early 2000s, you know, um, where, where we were kind of like, it was the heyday for me of Stanford water polo club with where it was, we were in championship games and it was fun. And, and JT taught me, 
you know, how, how to organize my practices and how to look at what I'm doing as if, as if I'm a teacher. And I never thought of it as I was a teacher. I'd always say, I'm a coach. I'm not a teacher, you know? Um, but you know, how to put together lesson plans and practice plans and, and how to be organized. Um, you know, JT is probably one of the, probably the most organized person that I know. Um, and so I learned so much from him and, and, you know, he, him and, and Susan and that just helped me get to where I am and were so supportive of me. And so I would, I would say definitely them. And then I would also say my athletic director at Castileo was, was super supportive of me and, and a mentor to me on, on the administrative side of things and, and giving me opportunities. And, you know, I never graduated from high school. I got my GED and, and I had a son when I was just turned 20 and, and I was working for a meat company and, you know, he, he gave me an opportunity to, to coach and, and do all these things and go back to college and get my degree in, in 05. And, um, that was a life changing thing for me. So I would say those are probably the most important mentors that I've had, um, in my career right now. That's and then there's others that, you know, we're, we're always talking, you know, to coaches and, yeah, of course. you know, I've, you know, but I would, those would be definitely the, the top of my list. That's and if a, I missed anyone, I apologize. No, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting path because, you know, I, I mean, obviously you and I, we see each other on the pool deck. We talk, yep. you know, yep. um, and it's interesting to hear that, you know, you got your GED and, and you know, the path that you took. It's a lot different than the path that yeah. the kids that you're coaching are probably take, have taken. It, yeah. and, and, you know, and, not to dive into this whole thing, but. I mean, that must be such an interesting perspective to pass on to your students, to your athletes, you know, like that has to provide insight into what they're thinking and and how like the perspective that they should take on life. Hey, it's not, you know, don't put so much pressure on yourself. You know, it's all going to work out. I mean, is that I don't want to assume, but is that sort of one of your thought process? Yeah, I mean, I think I think. But, you know, one, I think that was one of the reasons I was so intriguing to Harvard um, when they hired me was, you know, that I, I did not take the traditional path to get to where I was yeah. or where I am and that you can have some bumps in the road and still be successful, um, you know, and, and so definitely I think that I... I, I learned so much from my athletes. They're so intelligent and they do some amazing things. And, and we, you know, I tell them all the time, you know, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy here for sure. And I don't think I know it all. And you guys are way smarter than me. And they go, oh, you're a smart coach and all that stuff. You know, it's great. It's, it makes me feel good. Yeah. But I, I think they realize who I am and where I've been and that everything that they're doing is going to help them and make them better and that it's not going to be the end of the world if they have to take another path, if they have to do something different, if they have to be creative in how they're going to do things. And hopefully I'm a good role model to them because that's what I strive to be. That's awesome. That is really cool. Um, and then the last question I have is, what advice would you give to a young coach? Uh, I get a lot of a lot of coaches listening to this, a lot of young coaches starting out. Any advice that you wish you had? Yeah, I, I mean, I think for me, first it was like I, I've learned so much from conversations with other coaches, and not just water polo coaches, but coaches in general. I mean, coaching is coaching, and people have so much that they can offer you, and don't be afraid to to change and adapt. 
I think that's the biggest thing. Um, I, I, I always say that I'm going to listen to what everybody has to say, and then I'm going to go back and evaluate it and I'm going to pick and choose what I want. And that's how I'm going to build who I am as a water polo coach. And, I remember when I was first coming uh, coaching on the guy side at MA, I was always like, this is the way it's going to work. This is how we're going to do things. I'm going to be successful because I'm good at what I do. I don't need to go to college. I don't need a degree. I'll get a college job because I'm that good. And that wasn't happening. And that's, you know, the first thing I learned from JT was like, no, that's not how it works. (laughs) So, you know, so, I mean, I think not being afraid to ask for help from others and listening to others and, and not being that I know everything um, is, is something that will help you get farther and grow as a coach, I believe. That's great advice and always learning. I mean, that's one of the reasons yeah. why this podcast has been so beneficial to to me personally, you know, I mean, it's, it's just been great to like hear, talk, get to know coaches like on a personal level and, and how they think. So uh, you know. uh, I love listening to it. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think I always take something away when I listen to, to your guests and, and, uh, I think you're doing a great job and it's great for our sport. And, and, you know, I hope more people really kind of listen to what you're doing and, and, you know, kind of give you more help on to be able to, to grow this thing. Well, I, I really appreciate it. It's coaches like you being on, um, being a guest that really do project this forward. So I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, to yeah, for pleasure. Harvard. Um, hope Anytime, to have, man. Hope to have you again. Any- and um, yep. obviously, good luck in the women's season this year. And um, well, thank you. See you soon. Yeah. Hey, good luck with your high school season, man. Okay. I appreciate it. Yeah.